This week's episode of the Men With Hats podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Bridge Apparel. Bridgeapparel.org. Guys, go check out their website. They have a ton of cool, uh, unique, one-of-a-kind products available on their website. If you have not yet listened to episode six, The Bridge, go back and listen to that episode because we sit down and we talk with Andrew, the owner of Bridge Apparel, and we go very in-depth into not only the business, but why he started the business and what the business model does in terms of not just providing a really cool, unique product to its customers, but also in elevating the lives of the people that produce those products, be they uh, local to uh, Bridge Apparel's brick and mortar store or um, overseas uh, where some of their other products are produced. So go check them out, bridgeapparel.org. Lots of cool stuff, good people. You won't regret it. This is Men with Hats. Men with Hats. All right, guys. So this week we are doing an interview with the author of Passion Projects for Smart People. So Passion Projects for Smart People. This was a subtitle. Uh, yeah. Turn your intellectual pursuits into fun, profit, and recognition. Is that by the subtitle? Michael Wing, Dr. Michael Wing. Yeah. Totally missed the subtitle. <laughs> anyway, this is uh, this was kind of a solo thing that Aaron did because of uh, scheduling conflicts. So you won't be hearing me yep. for the next half hour ish <laughs> take it away Aaron <laughs> tell us about it yes so uh actually Dr. Michael Wing is a pretty cool guy I got to talk with him this uh interview was actually recorded a couple of months ago if not uh, maybe even a few months ago Ooh. not even longer yeah and um so anyways we sat down and talked about his book he is um he's kind of a unique guy so he's a high school uh science professor and, of course, being a teacher, you have a lot of time off during the summer. Um, and so he's used those times in the summer to be able to pursue um, various other passion projects of his own mm. um, and educate himself on fields that he is, um, you know, not in direct contact with as it relates to his job as a high school professor. Um, so, you know, this kind of this kind of relates to the men with hats, kind of the grander theme in men with hats of being a man of many hats. So, mm-hmm. um, Mike is really kind of that kind of person that, uh, goes out and, uh, cultivates new areas of knowledge, not only in his field, um, but in other fields as well. And has kind of crossed, um, over into a variety of fields and he'll, he'll talk about that in the interview itself. Um, so then, but the book that he's written now is, uh, is kind of aimed at people that, um, you know, have a job or have a career, but they also feel kind of a pull to do something else outside of that career that may give them uh, more fulfillment, give them, uh, perhaps another, uh, side stream of income, whatever that, um, whatever that reason behind wanting to go and do one of these passion projects. Um, so he, he talks in the book about how to go about doing that. Um, and he kind of profiles a number of, uh, people that he knows that have done that as well and how they've been successful at that and how you can do that if you're interested in doing it for yourself. So, so we talked about this really briefly, but do you think it's called passion projects for smart people because it's geared towards people that are already smart or it's saying be smart and do a passion project? So, um, 
I don't know that we actually directly talked about that in the book. And since the book actually doesn't come out until November. I no, I would just say it. that you and I talked about this briefly. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that um, I don't know that you could really I wouldn't really necessarily put that on, on one side or the other. Um, you don't necessarily have to be smart to read fr- <laughs> read this book and benefit from it. Um, but yeah, so yeah, if well. you're not smart, yeah. Go ahead. Listen. Read. <laughs> Go ahead and enjoy it anyway. Prove him <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Passion projects for mildly interesting people. <laughs> Passion projects for the casual observer. Passion projects for the nearly innocent bystander. Passion projects for those that are casually interested but don't care all that much. Passion projects for that guy picking his nose next to the monkey cage at the zoo. This is getting really specific. <laughs> There's a book out there for you, sir. There is, Mr monkey caged booger flicker (laughs) (laughs) anyways guys um when this book comes out in november go and buy it um i'm sure it's going to be a very interesting read something that you can benefit from and learn a lot from and uh, i really hope that you enjoy the interview (laughs) oh that works My guest today is Dr. Michael Wing, who is a ninth grade public school teacher. He has done field work in the Galapagos, Costa Rica, Alaska, Finland, Namibia, the United Arab Emirates, the Pacific Ocean, and the high Arctic with outside organizations paying his way. That's the best part right there. He publishes in peer-reviewed journals, wins grants from corporations and the National Geographic Society, and collaborates with organizations like NASA, the University of California, and the National Park Service. His projects range from marine biology to high-altitude gardening to astrobiology to archaeology. So, Dr. Michael Wing, it's a pleasure to have you on the Men With Hats podcast. Wonderful to be here, Aaron, and thanks for the invitation. So I think everyone that is listening to this is just going to be blown away, uh, kind of as I was, that a high school public school teacher has accomplished all of those things. That's a, that's a fairly wide-reaching career. And it, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Yeah. So um, kind of help us to, uh, I, I really got um, the idea that you're a very uh, kind of DIY, do-it-yourself kind of person, that you have that spirit about you. Um, in the description that you, you talk about, kind of the inciting moment of where you got the idea from this book, that your sister-in-law wrote a book about keeping goats in Seattle, of all things. And no offense to her, you know, that, that's a real book. But the realization that you had, that she had had some measure of success writing a book about goats in Seattle, and then that made you think about writing your own book. Well, it it did, Aaron. For for a long time, I was too busy leading the lifestyle that I've written about to, to think of writing a book. And anyway, I never had written a book. I, I didn't grow, grow up dreaming of it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was b- busy doing other things. But what inspired me to do it is my sister-in-law, Jenny Grant, wrote this wonderful and very engaging book called City Goats. And there's a whole story behind it. And she had her her 15 minutes of fame because she keeps goats in the city of Seattle. Mm -hmm. And it was illegal. And uh, she just hoped that that wouldn't be a problem. But a, a neighbor turned her in. And rather than get rid of her goats, she essentially started a a publicity campaign to get the city of Seattle to change the laws regarding goats. She was able to demonstrate that these laws go go back to um, uh, racist land use restrictions Hmm. and covenants and things like that. And so 
a publisher approached her and said, why don't you write a book about keeping goats in the city? And, and she did. And it's really, I think it's witty and insightful and yeah. well-written. And it's very entertaining read, even though I don't keep goats and have no, no interest in keeping goats. <laughs> so I was visiting her and her and, and other relatives in Seattle. And on this long drive back from Seattle to San Francisco, you just drive down Interstate 5 and it's a straight shot and it's e- easy driving, very safe. And you have a lot of time to think about things. And I started to think about well, if she could write a book about that, couldn't I write a book about about how anyone can do the things that a university professor does, even even without the resources of a university? Mm-hmm. So uh, I started to think of chapter topics. I, I literally um, had to rip a, a, a page out of a telephone book at a hotel to, to write some notes down <laughs> on, because that's the kind of person I am. I write, I physically write stuff down. Yes, yeah. And too. by the time I got to San Francisco, I had an outline. That's great. I, yeah, I really connect with the uh, that that ripping a piece of paper out of whatever you have at hand and being resourceful like that. I I always um, I I would do that for a long time, and my I guess uh, solution to that was I always keep a legal pad around me or near me. I'm never more than probably about ten feet from a legal pad because you know I have right. random thoughts or ideas, and and I if I don't write them down, I will forget them. So right. Um, So let's talk about a little bit, uh, I guess, your initial foray into these passion projects. Um, I think it started with the uh, Toyota International Teachers Program. That was kind of where um, this kind of lifestyle started to come to you. It it did. I I had some lucky breaks, but but now that I've gotten down this path far enough, I realized that I didn't necessarily need them and Mm -hmm. that I, I could have started much earlier than I did. But just to be clear... Uh, for the first seven years that I taught high school, I just taught my classes and went home. I yeah. was doing nothing, nothing special outside of that. And uh, it, what turned it around for me <clears throat> is about 10 years ago, I went on this free study tour for teachers called the Toyota International Teachers Program. Mm-hmm. So the Toyota Mo- Motor Sales Corporation, um, every year for a few years there, the program doesn't, doesn't uh, function anymore, but they would pick two dozen teachers and, and send, send us to the Galapagos, all expenses paid. And while I was there, uh, <clears throat> they took us around the islands and I was visiting this de- demonstration farm run by this guy who lives locally in the Galapagos mm-hmm. and wanted to grow local food because most of the food in the Galapagos is imported, okay. right? And I was already thinking about a different problem, uh, complete, what I thought was a completely different problem. This scientist named Pascal Lee had visited my school and talked about his research program in, in Canada's high Arctic, and, and he sort of half invited us to come. But it would have been very expensive, mm. or, or to get involved in some way. And then it also happened that I'd been hiking in uh, California's White Mountains and seen this, this research institution up there called the um, University of California's White Mountains um, Research Center. And somehow, when you travel, at least for me, when you travel, get outside of your daily routine, your brain works in different ways. Yeah. Ideas start to blend together mm-hmm. and, and you make connections that I think it just in your daily routine you wouldn't have made. And so uh, somehow these all three of these things merged in my brain and I thought, well, we can't grow food on Devon Island because it's too expensive to go to, but whatever project we would have taken there, we could just do it in the University of California's White Mountain Research Station. Mm -hmm. So by the time I, the the day after I got back, I contacted the University of California and said, hey, okay, if a high school group does this little project at your station. And, you know, they they got back to me the same day and said, sure. I mean, you know, there were were forms to fill out and and hoops to jump through, but it wasn't that big a deal. They they essentially gave me a a go-ahead in principle to 
the, the first day. That's great. So that was sort of, that was, so we built this little um, miniature greenhouse at an elevation of 12 and a half thousand feet. And for a while, it was the highest garden in North America. And we went up there every year and we planted stuff. It was automated. We had, we had an automatic mm. watering system. So okay. we could go up in the spring and plant stuff and come back in the fall. And, um, and that got a lot of attention and, and led to some grants and led to other projects. Wow, that's great. So, um, I, I guess, and so kind of talk about from there, you really expanded, um, I, I think one of the really cool accomplishments that stood out to me, um, was that you have, uh, a, you have projects that encompass deserts on all seven continents. Yeah, I do. That, that has to be, uh, that has to be an incredible feeling. Feel free to brag about yourself for a minute. Are, are you the only person that can say that? Because that seems like quite an accomplishment. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not the only person who's, um, in fact, I haven't even been to all seven continents yet. My, my project in, in Antarctica and my project in Australia were deployed by other people. So okay. I hope to get to these sites someday, but I don't, I don't, um, I haven't been there, but yeah, I, it might be true. Uh, so what I what what I and my students have done is we've taken a bunch of um, marble and glass tiles mm-hmm. and sanded them and prepared their surfaces in a certain way, and then set them out in little grids, little arrays in in various extreme environments around the world: high alpine mountaintops, deserts, uh, polar regions. And uh, the reason we've done that is because certain kind of bacteria called cyanobacteria will colonize the undersides of these. Uh, they live under stones okay. in really extreme environments like deserts, mountaintops, and, and the Arctic and Antarctic regions. So, yeah, we I currently have actually 10 sets of these stones. Each set is about 60, and it occupies about a square, square meter, you know, basically three feet by three feet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have 10 of these sets on all, on all seven continents. And some of them I deployed myself. Uh, some were deployed by students or, or teachers from my school. Some were deployed by scientists who go to these places. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, resources, money especially, um, kind of plays a, a huge role in, in being able to travel and having the, uh, the freedom to do that in life can be expensive. Perhaps listeners or, or readers of your book, um, you know, they, they read the description on the back and they say, yeah, that's a cool idea, but I don't have the fill in the blank money, time off, flexibility with my job, or they say, I've got a family. Um, and surely you've had some of those same obstacles. How have you overcome them? Well, I, I, I have, uh, to be clear, my, I have a, I have two, a wife and two children. My, my family of four lives on my teacher's salary. I'm not independently wealthy. Hmm. I have no extra source of, of income beyond the, the money I earn each year. And if I thought I had to be rich to do these things, I wouldn't do any of them. Yeah. Uh, so when it, when it comes to the, um, the project where we put tiles and around the world to have cyanobacteria grow underneath them, it wasn't as expensive as it sounds. Okay. Uh, the tiles themselves cost about 50 cents each. So, you know, I could, I could buy them out of my own pocket or yeah. I could, uh, most of the time I use some science department uh, funds for those. Uh, obviously, the expensive part is the, the travel part, right? Mm-hmm. But some of these trips have been free. Some of them I haven't had to, 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 to go on at all. So, for instance, um, Putting these stones on White Mountain Peak while well, I was going there anyway with students for uh, for another purpose, a, a school field trip. Uh, putting these stones in the Mojave Desert, same thing. I can get to the Mojave Desert on a couple tanks of gas. Mm-hmm. I did apply for and get a grant 
to go to the Canadian Arctic, uh, to Devon Island in, in the high Arctic. I got a $12,000 grant from the National Geographic Society. So this is, this was a grant that's really intended for graduate students and postdoctoral research fellows, but I applied for it. I made a, I made a case that I had a real project to do and they gave it to me. Um, when I went to Namibia and put a, that my first set was actually placed in Namibia, but I was tagging along with a, a NASA scientist, a guy named Chris McKay, who in, invited me to come because I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. The Antarctica and um, South America and Australia sets, I all just handed off to a scientist who goes to various scientists, not just one of them, yeah. who go there anyway. So I guess what I'm saying is if you don't have money, you can always uh, finesse that with collaborations. Okay, maybe I can't get to the United Arab Emirates uh, because I can't afford it this this year. But I I can always in this in this world you can always find someone who's going. Sure. You can say, hey, take this. Here's the instructions. Put this on the ground. Take these photographs. Collect this data. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, I have to say, it does give me a, a sense of satisfaction to think about these these stones that lying on the ground that I've put there or caused to be put there that there are 10 places around the world you can find them on Google Earth and and uh most of the time I don't have to do anything this is a very long-term project yeah, yeah. right it doesn't it doesn't take a lot of maintenance let's let's kind of take a rabbit trail for a second because uh you've shared you know your how how you've how you've overcome the um kind of the financial uh piece of this and and been able to subsidize your travel and your projects by really piggybacking on other people's projects and their budgets. Um, That's right. You've, you've shared how you've worked with uh, these various projects into your life and um, all of the various really cool missions that you've been able to work on. And But I, I want to understand something uh, much more personal in a way, and that really is the why. You talk about getting mm. to um, the place in your teaching career where you would just teach and then you would go home. And it was kind of right. – uh, it sounds like it was kind of on autopilot for you. And I'm sure many teachers – and many people in, in all kinds of careers um, would find themselves in that kind of a place in their job. You didn't stay there, though. So why did you decide to strike out on a new path? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question, Aaron. I want to make it clear there's absolutely nothing shameful about doing your work and then going home. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. That's what I did for, for many years. And, and um and, and of course, uh, when you have young children, they, they, they need you in all kinds of short-term ways. Indeed. Um, but, but I was, you know, I've been teaching for seven or eight years. I was getting to the point where I feel like I'd mastered the classroom part of it. And I, I, was, I was looking for something more. And I think a lot of us are in, mm-hmm. in, in our lives. And uh, the thing about having small children at home, you know, uh, children have... The, many short-term needs, but they also have long-term needs, yeah. right? They, they're going to grow up in, in a world that's not like ours and, and a world mm-hmm. where uh, a premium is put, I think, on creativity and and um, and uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And so seeing their parent doing something unusual and that's that's outside the, the usual role of being a, being a worker, being a teacher, being a parent and, and, and so on, that's good for them. That gives them a that that gives them a, something they can model their, their own activities on when they get older, or even in some cases get involved. My my kids have been involved in some of my projects, including the ones in the in California's White Mountains. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I did it because I was looking for the next I was looking for a new phase in my life to start. I was looking for some challenge. And to tell you the truth, I was i guess I was just looking for happiness. That's really what, why I did it. And it does make me happy 
to think to these these projects are kind of like um kind of like a secret garden right it's some, sure. it's a place you think about a lot even when you're not working a lot in them on them right right yeah well in the book you profile a variety of people and share their stories that have have had paths similar to the one that you've taken and not all of yeah. them like yourself uh, not all of them have uh, PhDs, or I should say, you you have a PhD. Not all of them have had PhDs. I do, and that's true. So Both of them don't. You y- you talk about the fact that having a PhD doesn't magically open doors or create ac- uh, opportunities for you to take. And so I'm, I'm Alas, sure some no. of of our listeners are saying, I don't have an advanced degree, or you know, I didn't study a hard science, or I, I don't have a STEM degree, or or whatever. Um, they may not even have scientific goals. They may be creatives at heart, or they may be humanitarians, or uh, you know, they may dream of being an astronaut, or, or whatever it may be in their specific case. So, Mike, help these listeners connect the dots from wanting to pursue their passion to piggybacking their passion onto someone else's project or on someone else's budget. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I've profiled 16 people in the book who, who've done each of, has done something extraordinary, um, and 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 each uh, quite distinct and unique from, from, from each other one. Yeah. Um, a few of them have PhDs or master's degrees. Uh, some have bachelor's degrees, and more than a few have no college degree at all, including a self-taught historian who now works full-time for the National Park Service. He's a wow. professional historian who has no history degree. Um, <laughs> I mean, having a PhD has helped me in, in the very, a very limited sense that I know how to, to, to design a project and see it through to completion. But, but no, having any kind of degree does not make the world fall all over itself to offer you what you want. Uh, I think that, and, and, and then I also want to point out that my PhD is not not in any of the fields we've been discussing. So I, I have a PhD in earth sciences, but these okay. pro, the recent projects we've been talking about have been about biology. Um, uh, I have an archaeology project going, uh, horticulture project. So mm-hmm. I have actually no formal training in the areas in which I'm doing these projects. I think what matters most is that you want to work on something. You educate yourself about some interesting question that's got your attention to the point that you can make an original contribution to it. And, 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 you, and you do that by starting small. And you, and, and you do that by affiliating yourself with, with some institution that's larger than yourself, like in my case, the University of California mm-hmm. or NASA, and um, collaborating with someone who is an expert. Yeah, yeah. So kind of talk for a second about the fact that you're a recovering academic. What, what does that mean to you and how does that fit in with this journey that you've taken? Well, a lot of people go to graduate school, maybe even get a PhD, um, want to live like a, want to be professors. Mm -hmm. And what I've discovered is that you can live like a professor and do this, do the things that professors do without having to be one. Uh, because the truth is that there are far fewer jobs, even for, even if you have a PhD, there, there are far fewer jobs in academia, jobs, good jobs for professors than there used to be. Uh, most universities and colleges are now going to an adjunct faculty model where they just hire individual people to come in and teach individual courses and give them a few thousand dollars for, for doing that. And that can be a good experience for everyone involved, uh, but it's no way to make a living. You can't, you, you can't possibly support yourself financially being an adjunct professor. Mm-hmm. And so, um, there are, Currently, you know, millions of people who either have a PhD or, or, or in some sort of graduate program uh, who aren't going to make a living as a professor, and yet they're attracted to that, that life of the mind um, 
world. Yeah. And so what are they going to do? What, what I argue they should do is get a real job like I have um, for a school, for a company, for, for, for a government agency, you know, a, a job with benefits, a job with, a job with opportunities, mm-hmm. uh, and then leverage that job and use it to do the things they want to do. Yeah. Well, I find it interesting also that you apply this not just to, um, you know, people from your own walk of life or from your season of life. Um, you apply this also to people that are retired and have, um, you know, since hung up their careers and now have a lot more free time. How are those people able to pursue these same kinds of passion projects? Well, I, th- I think I think in many ways retirees have have it better than the rest of us that way. They, they certainly have time. There, there are something like 40 or 50 million retired people in the United States. I don't know the exact number. Um, and sure, not every retired person ha- has a comfortable income, has good health, mm-hmm. um, has the intellectual c- curiosity to, to pursue projects like these, but there are still millions who, who meet all those criteria. And the, the funny, I was reading this article in the New York Times about this called the, the, the Gray Jobs Enigma. And what it said is that almost all people think, well, oh, after I retire, I'm still going to work. I'll, I'll get some other job, do some kind of part-time paid work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet what happens is very few of them actually do that. Hmm. There's a big disconnect between what people imagine retirement's going to be like for them and what it really is like. And... Um, there's various reasons for that. No, 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 nobody's quite sure. But w- what do retired people do? You know, there's a lot of hours in the day. You can <clears throat> people talk about traveling, you know, taking care of the grandchildren, walking the dog, take classes, volunteer. Um, there's they're all good things to do. But there's still time to do all these and have some special creative project going. Yeah, right? yeah. It's interesting that you talk about retirees pursuing these passion projects, because what that indicates to me, um, and I, I wouldn't know because I'm not at that season of life yet, but what that indicates to me is that this intellectual curiosity is not something that goes away with accomplishment. It's not a, an itch that you scratch. It's it's not a destination. It's a journey. And yeah. I could, I guess, kind of, I, I have a seventh-month-old son at home, and so I'm, I'm fairly mm-hmm. interested in this on the other side of the lifespan. And how do you instill that um, insatiable desire for discovery in children? Gosh, I'm, I, I, I mean, the real question is, how do you keep it going in adults? I think I think most children are just born with it. Um, okay. They're always asking why. They're always oh, they're always looking into things. They're always collecting things. Um, children are, are natural collectors, and. In many ways, I think uh, collecting is, a, is an activity that 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 both, stim- both stimulates curiosity and creativity, and is, and is also stimulated by it. Uh, I would argue that that all children have this th- these properties, and then it and then you know li- life kind of beats it out of most of us. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just a matter of keeping it alive. Well, I, I, I'm no expert on childhood development, I'm afraid. <laughs> you, I, you're making me think about this for the first time. Um, I do think that if, that if the parent leads a, leads a, a creative and, and stimulating life, travels a lot, goes to museums, you know, reads, uh, 
listens to music and things like that. The, the, the child is naturally goes on hikes, what, what, yeah. whatever it is that, that interests you most. The, the child is going to grow up in that household, that world, and, and, and is, is going to be, become involved in these activities, too. Yeah. That's usually true. Well, it sounds like your kids have had the opportunity to grow up around that. Have they, uh, have they kind of followed in those footsteps as well, or what ways have they? Well, my, I have two children, and they're very different, but but one of them certainly has, um, and and both of them have have gone on some of these trips with me, um, and both both is certainly to the white to California's White Mountains, and mm-hmm. and one of them is has become fairly involved in some of my projects, especially the one with elephant seals, but uh, but yeah, they're they're two different people, and I would I would. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of how they're turning out. I have teenagers. Uh, they're, they're both very creative though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you one more question and I don't want it to get too political because, um, I, I think that it might have the potential, uh, or at least the way that it's covered, um, is sometimes cast in a political light. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it's fairly, um, you know, widely known that the American education system, uh, does not necessarily rank so well in certain metrics compared to some other members of the international community. And True. You've and, traveled. And California, oh, California, ahead. where I teach, r- r- ranks in the, in, the, in the bottom of the pack, even in the, in the U.S., I'm afraid to say. Oh, wow. Okay. So as someone who has, has uh, traveled extensively, um, and I'm sure you have worked with lots of different students and seen many different ways of doing things, uh, what, in your experience, do you think are the things that we are not doing in this country that other countries are doing and that we should be doing here to better prepare our students well, gosh, uh, in, 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 in education circles, people are always uh, talking about schools in Finland. You know, you always mm-hmm. hear about how Finland does everything right. And I've actually uh, spent some time in a Finnish school, and I have to say that it, it wasn't better than the school I teach in or the schools my, my kids have attended. But I live in a fairly affluent place. So essentially what I saw was a, a rural middle school in Finland, and it was just as good as a middle school here in Marin County, California, which is probably the most affluent county in California. Uh, so it's true that the Finns are doing things better because because I think that the comparable rural school in, in, in say, um, uh, certain areas of California wouldn't, wouldn't have been nearly as good. But I think that really, um, you know, it's about... Uh, I'm not sure that it's about the practice of the school. I I I I think it's more likely to be about income inequality, about uh, just the fact that in Finland everybody's middle class, everybody's uh, well taken mm-hmm. care of, everybody has health care. Um, there's a lot of social consensus in Finland. It's not okay. a it's not a divided country. So I think under those circumstances, if, if every every kid has a has a secure home and every every kid is health is healthy, and uh, society has kind of a common purpose, I I think that it's not that difficult to get a school going that that's really good. Yeah, well, that would be great if we were to suddenly uh, you know be able to snap our fingers and and make all of those things true in our own country. Amen. Yeah. Well, Passion Projects for Smart People comes out in November, but you're already working on another book, I understand. I'm working on a book for teenagers. It's a, it's a book for for high school students and, and maybe college students who um, who want it, who want something authentic that engages them. So many of the high school students in my school, I'm talking about the kids I teach, okay, they treat school as a, as a, a mechanism for getting into college. Mm-hmm. A lot of my kids are going to college. 
but they don't love it. They don't even enjoy it necessarily. They'll tell you that. And they assume that college will be this great thing that will impel them into a fantastic future. Uh, but then I see the same students 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, and I realize it, it doesn't work like that. Um, and so I'm, I, I, wish, I wish all of my students would worry a little bit less about the, their grades and, and their, you know, their test scores and what kind of college they're going to get into. And, uh, and not worry, but, but focus a little bit more on what they really love to do. Um, I'm convinced that if you really love to do something, it's going to propel you into a, a successful career and a successful life, even if it doesn't at first seem like you could possibly earn money doing that. I, I think that I, I, I know this is true. And so, um, so it's a book about opportunities for, for that you can, that you can start taking advantage of while you're still in high school. That's great. That's great. I'm sure that'll be extremely helpful to Many, many students, like you say, um, you know, coming out of uh, education, whether that's uh, high school or college and getting a job that is, um, you know, stable and provides for one's needs and provides benefits and all of those things um, is so much more valuable, I feel, than someone pursuing a degree simply for the paycheck at the end of it. Because you can, you can do anything for a paycheck for a while, but after mm -hmm. a while, that, that money means nothing. And you have to connect the work that you do on a day in day out basis to uh, something that really fulfills you and that makes you have that sense yeah, of accomplishment. You're, you're right, Aaron. At, at the end of the day, not only is it unsatisfying, but you, you end up getting out competed by someone who really does enjoy that activity because we're all different. Hmm. And there, there, there are some things you, you do in the business world that, that some people really love. And so you'll, you'll, come, you'll, you'll bump up against those people who really do love it for its own sake, and, and they'll, they'll make you look bad. Yeah. Well, our guest today has been Dr. Michael Wing, author of Passion Projects for Smart People. You can get this book um, in November on Amazon. It is available for pre-order currently. Um, so definitely pick the book up and uh, read it and go pursue passion projects of your own. Uh, Dr. Wing, yeah. any parting thoughts for us? Go pursue passion projects of your own. You don't need the resources that you think you need. You can just get started. That's great. Thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, you're very welcome, Aaron. Thank you.